I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome along to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90 Min Football Network. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simeon, and on this jam-packed show, we're going to be looking back at Manchester City 1, Arsenal 0 in the fourth round of the FA Cup. They may have won the battle, but Manchester City certainly haven't won the war. We're going to be talking about uh, my experience going up to the Etihad. I'll be discussing uh, what that was like. We'll be talking about the game, obviously, and some individual performances. Uh, we'll also be talking Thomas Partey, who sustained an injury disappointingly last night. We'll be bringing you the latest on Moises Caicedo and sharing some thoughts on that. And uh, we'll be taking some of your questions, of course, from the live chat box as well. So there is plenty to get through. If you're wondering why I'm not in my normal studio setting, well, if I'm honest with you, it's because I am absolutely shattered. I said I was going to talk about the journey to and from the Etihad Stadium. Going there wasn't too bad, although it still took probably an hour longer than it should have. Um, which put me on the back foot in terms of trying to get into my position for work on time. I had all sorts of um, issues getting my accreditation. I went to the media center. I was told that my accreditation, for some reason, along with a few others, was at the Manchester City Academy, which was on that complex, but I had to walk across some bridge to go and find it. When I got there, they told me they didn't have it, and I had to go back over uh, to the stadium. So all the meanwhile, I'm sort of rushing, trying to get on air uh, for BBC Radio London as quickly as possible. And it was just a really rubbish start to the night. And I kind of knew at that point that the result probably wasn't going to go our way, uh, just based on the omens that were sort of coming up in front of me. But yeah, I mean, as I said, right at the top there, they may have won that battle, but they certainly haven't won the war. I think Arsenal showed enough last night to give me confidence and I'm sure to give plenty of you confidence that we can compete with this Manchester City side uh, on a sort of uh, one-to-one level. I know that, you know, people will say, well, the league game is going to mean an awful lot more and that both teams are going to be stronger and that there's more riding on it and that the FA Cup is nowhere near the top of the priority list. I get all of that. And the Premier League games will be a totally different ball game. But what I would say is this, is Manchester City made two changes last night which shows how much they respect this Arsenal side because Pep Guardiola traditionally in the FA Cup makes way more changes than that. He only made two, two of which were Nathan Ake in the back line and, of course, Stefan Ortega, the goalkeeper. Other than that, he went with the same team that played in the Premier League last weekend. So, you know, he knew what Arsenal were capable of. He knew that it was important that his side... Uh, were able to progress, maybe because they're looking at the Premier League and thinking that this isn't something that they're in the driving seat to win. Maybe it's because Pep Guardiola in the FA Cup, generally speaking, doesn't have a great record. Um, uh, Maybe Pep Guardiola felt that if he was to beat us last night, that would give his side some sort of psychological advantage. And if Arsenal had played their strongest eleven, I probably would have agreed. I probably would have said that, yeah, in terms of that psychological advantage, Manchester City have it because we've gone head to head, okay, at their place, okay, in a different competition, but they'd have come out on top. But for Mikel Arteta to make the changes that he did, I think it kind of diluted any psychological advantage that Manchester City may or may not have gained. I must admit in the build up to this game, and and you guys would have seen uh, the preview show where I was talking with... Uh, Nicole Holiday, we were discussing what we should do. And I said, well, you either go full strength or you go fully weak. You know, you you, you can't really uh, mix and match it too much just because I don't think we have the depth in a lot of areas. And I don't think we have the quality to kind of backfill some of the positions that ideally you'd like to give players a rest in. As I sort of made my way up to the Etihad and sort of spoke to plenty of Arsenal fans and my friends that I was traveling up there with, etc, etc. I kind of talked myself into believing that actually, because of the fact that there wasn't another game or isn't another game until next weekend, that maybe Mikel Arteta would just say, you know what, let's go full strength. Let's try and impose ourselves on Manchester City, because if we can do it, I talk about psychological gains and psychological advantages. Well, that would have been 
an opportunity for Arsenal to gain one of their own had they gone to Manchester City and played really well and come away with the result. But Mikel Arteta, I think, showed that the FA Cup is not a priority for him. I'm not going to say that he doesn't care about the FA Cup at all. It is a cup competition that he's won as the Arsenal manager and as an Arsenal player. It's a cup competition that probably brought him a little bit more uh, leeway when things were going badly for him as Arsenal boss. You know, it probably would be seen as something that kept him in the job just that little bit longer, which allowed him to then uh, kind of turn things around at Emirates Stadium. So I'm not going to say that Mikel Arteta doesn't care at all about the FA Cup because if he did, if if it was a, a complete um, non-issue for him, he'd have left Thomas Partey out. He'd have probably left Granit Xhaka out. Um, you know, he probably wouldn't have played Gabriel. I don't think he would have turned to the bench in the way he did when things threatened to get away from us. So, yeah, I don't think he totally threw it, but I obviously think that he has to, at some point, make decisions around where his priorities lie just because of the lack of depth in the side. So he made six changes. Turner, Tomiyasu, Holding, Tierney, Vieira and Trossar all came in. And we'll come on to talk about some of those individual displays in just a moment. But I just want to point you in the direction, if you are interested in my post-match player ratings recorded straight after the full-time whistle inside the Etihad Stadium, uh, you can check that out on the Another Slice platform. You can see it here. Uh, visit the link in the description, anotherslice.com forward slash Chronicles of Aguna. If you go over there, create your account. Once you've done that, log in with it and subscribe to our podcast. You will get access to our exclusive content. You'll not just be supporting me to bring you more content and better quality content, but you'll be supporting the Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital too, whom we are donating to from our membership pot. So uh, please do uh, check that out. If you are interested, that is, in um, in giving us that additional bit of support, it's not compulsory. I have to say that because, you know, I've had a few messages over the last sort of month or so from people saying, oh my God, is this no longer going to be on YouTube? No, that's not the case, right? This podcast will be available to everybody in the way it always has been. Um, but we're making additional content for our members. And basically the goal is to be able to, you know, as a freelance broadcaster, to be able to push to one side the, the stuff that I don't really like, the jobs that I don't really um sort of see as as where I want to be headed and fill that time and void with more Chronicles of Aguna content. Essentially that's the end goal, right? That's the game, uh the end game, I should say. That's where I want to be. Um so that's why we're doing this as well. Okay, let's talk about the first half generally speaking. We'll we'll talk about Kaiseido in a minute because I can see that a lot of you are uh highlighting uh some fresh reports that are doing uh the rounds regarding him regarding what Brighton may be demanding. We'll get to that in a little bit, but I do want to focus on the game first. Um, so as I say, the journey up there, not great. Um, the journey back, even worse. Uh, we decided to stop off at a local McDonald's to get some food uh, before we set off to come back. And we ended up waiting like 40 minutes to get our McDonald's order. I mean, whatever happened to fast food? And that set us back a little bit. And then when we got on the, the road, one motorway was closed. There was a diversion somewhere else. And we ended up basically going around the houses. And where we thought we were going to get home at about 2.30 in the morning, we ended up getting home at 4, uh, just gone 4. So if my throat is a little bit croaky this morning, that's why. Obviously, when you've got little kids uh, of the ages of 1 and 4, um, you're not going to get to sleep in. And that was my problem this morning. So I'm a little bit worse for wear. But... Wanted to get this podcast out ASAP uh, so we could discuss this match at length and in detail. Um, and let's start with the first half then. I thought we were really competitive, really competitive. I thought we were brave. Um, I think in the past I've seen Arsenal sides go to the likes of the Etihad and sort of go into their shell, be very defensive, be very um, unadventurous. Particularly in the early days of Mikel Arteta, I think that was something you could actually say quite regularly that we had a good shape and we tried to, um, you know, we tried to nullify our opponents and we sort of threatened to play nice stuff in the build up at various points, but we didn't really pack a punch. We were just a little bit frail in terms of when we were trying to attack people, when we were trying to put it on our opponents. And 
look, I'm not going to say that we were amazing in terms of the opportunities that we created, but we did create a couple of chances in that first half. Leandro Trossard, I thought, was really good in that first half. A constant threat, a constant problem for John Stones. And to give you an idea of how much of a problem that was for John Stones, there was a point in that first period where Pep Guardiola said to John Stones, you go more central. Because obviously City play very similarly to us, right? Rico Lewis, who was on paper, the right back, would drift infield and John Stones would come out to the right-hand side. Manuel Akanji would shift across. Nathan Ake, who is, again, on paper, a left-back, but by trade, you'd probably argue more of a centre-back, would tuck in on that other side. And it's a very similar system to the one that we see applied at Arsenal. But there was a point in that first period where Pep Guardiola instructed John Stones to go into that central role and asked Manuel Akanji to come out maybe because he felt that he could deal with the threat posed by Leandro Trossard a little bit more effectively. So the Belgian, I thought, especially in that first period, didn't play much in the second half, to be fair to him. But in the first period, I thought he gave a really, really good account of himself and reminded us all again why he's such a good fit for the Arsenal. Quick feet, direct, sharp, wants to take people on. I think he's very good when it comes to decision-making in and around the penalty area. Should I cross? Should I shoot? He seems to be able to make those decisions really, really well. And that's obviously fantastic to see. Um, I talked about us being competitive and I thought we really were, to be honest. Um, Manchester City didn't create much and, and we limited Erling Haaland to very little. But from the first minute, in my opinion, you could see that Rob Holding was incredibly uncomfortable dealing with him. I, I saw some people on Twitter yesterday at the break sort of leaping to the defence of Rob Holding and being sort of very... Yeah, defensive of the guy as if he'd put in this masterclass of a performance that um, warranted praise. Instead, for me, he was actually probably um, the weak link. I looked at Rob Holding and I felt like if Manchester City were going to score, particularly in that first half, it was going to come through Haaland gaining an advantage on him. He was too tight in my opinion now I know that defenders there are defenders out there that like to do that right Gabriel likes to get tight to people but Gabriel gets tight to people but also has the recovery pace to turn around and, and recover if he does lose you in the first instance if you spin Gabriel there's a good chance that he catches back up to you with Rob Holding that's absolutely not the case he was getting involved in physical altercations with Erling Haaland when Manchester City were dropping balls over the top of him and there was a, an incident right at the start of the game where, yes, Haaland was holding on to him a little bit, but he had full hold of Haaland's shirt as he looked to pull away. And that, to me, was um, a, a real sign that actually Rob Holding didn't really believe in his own ability to be able to contain one of the world's best strikers. And I thought, actually, when, when Rob Holding got that yellow card, it was a bit of a blessing in disguise. But, and, I, and I'll explain why, because... Rob Holding is this great character in and around the changing room. Mikel Arteta has alluded to that before. You can just see and, and get you get that feeling, don't you, that he is a real part of the changing room, a real part of the camaraderie, the the the, um, the togetherness, etc., etc. Doesn't complain at the fact that he is very much a bit part player. And you kind of need people like that in your squad to a degree and to a point. But the problem when you do that, when you have someone who's, ability is limited and his ability absolutely is limited this is not me trying to be horrible to Rob Holding or, or wanting to find a scapegoat or anything like that but his ability is limited both defensively but also when it comes to progressing the ball out from the back when you saw William Saliba come on in the in the second half and play passes into midfield and break lines you could see the difference it was kind of like night and day right seeing one of them really struggled to do that and, and sort of panicking and, and I think chipping balls out left and right from, you know, a fear of making a mistake by trying to be a little bit more uh, Arsenal-like in his build-up play. And then you had another one that came in and actually just did exactly what his manager would have wanted and what's been, worked really well for Arsenal so far this season. But Mikel Arteta's got a bit of an issue there because, as I say, someone like Rob Holding is a great character. He, I'm sure he trains hard. I'm sure he works incredibly hard behind the scenes. And I'm sure as a person, he's a really positive influence. So then as a manager, you've got this conundrum because if you don't play Rob Holding when you've made six changes, when does he ever get a game? So th there's a part of you as a manager that wants to reward him for being 
a good influence in and around the changing room. There's a part of you that wants to repay that to Rob Holding by giving him a start. But at the same time, you know that he's not good enough deep down. And, and I think the first half for me, although some people have said that he played quite well, I completely disagree with that. I thought he was a problem. I thought he was a, I thought he was the weak link. I thought he was the one that Manchester City were looking at as somebody they could A, expose defensively by putting Haaland in behind him, but B, somebody that they could potentially get sent off as well and then handicap us for the rest of the game. So I thought the change needed to happen and him picking up a yellow card when he did just minutes before half time gave Mikel Arteta after what he did against Manchester United where he took off Ben White at the break because he was on a booking and he was up against a tricky opponent. That yellow card gave Mikel Arteta the perfect excuse to not kill Rob Holding's confidence, but also to get him off the pitch and strengthen us defensively. Now, I know some people will turn around and say, well, we didn't concede a goal in the first half when Rob Holding was on, but we did after he went off. The, the fact that we conceded a goal had absolutely nothing to do with who was playing centre-back um, at that point, in my opinion. But yeah, I just thought, you know, he he had to go off. And um, and uh, yeah, I think Mikel Arteta made the right decision. Um, David Marr has dropped a super chat in. Thank you so, so much, mate. I will come on to that. I've starred it, so I will come back to it when we move on to the Caicedo chat, which we'll get to. Uh, sooner rather than later, I promise. If I could just quickly remind you guys, if you haven't done so already, uh, leave a like on the video. There's over 300 of you with me live right now. Uh, if you could help me get that up to 150 likes, that would be great. Uh, we're only about five subscribers away also from hitting the 26K mark on the YouTube channel. So uh, yeah, please help me get there and we continue our journey towards 30,000, which is the next milestone, of course. So I talked about Rob Holding and the need for him to come off. And and as I say, many of us expected him to make way. I, I put out a tweet um, at the break. I said that yellow card to Holding should be the excuse Arteta needs to take him off at halftime. He's the obvious weak link in this team. And it's only a matter of time before he's exposed at the cost of a goal. And I, I remember sort of, I always speak to my dad at halftime of a match. So even when I'm working, I try and make a few minutes uh, to give him a quick call and get his thoughts on on the first half. And um, and I, I thought, I don't really have time this time, so I'll text him instead. And my dad, like, you'll text him and you'll get a one-word answer back. You know, he's takes him half an hour to write a text. Um, but I did text him exactly that. And um, because I felt really strongly about it, I felt like we really needed to learn from previous mistakes. It, it just gave me holding at Spurs last season vibes against Son, where he ended up getting himself sent off. So that change was made great. But what we didn't expect at the break was to see Thomas Partey replaced by Sambi Lakonga. At the time, I was worried. I was concerned. I didn't know why Thomas Partey had made way. I asked some of my colleagues in the, in the press box, does anybody know why Thomas Partey has been replaced? Is there any information on that? Nobody knew. Um, I think you could kind of tell from a lot of people's reactions that they feared the worst, especially those that cover Arsenal very closely. You could tell that they feared the worst, given that Mikel Arteta had taken the decision to start him. So then to kind of take him off at the break when the game was very finely balanced, it felt a little bit weird, a little bit strange. On comes Lukonga. And obviously we found out after the game that Thomas Partey uh, had picked up an injury, that he felt something. We understand that it is an injury to the ribs um, which is not a common injury in football, I guess, or not as common as a muscle strain, for example, or anything like that. Um, I remember thinking sort of when I got back to the car and, and you know, or prior to that, when Mikel Arteta kind of revealed that there was some sort of injury problem and then it started being reported that it was a rib thing, you know, how serious can this be? How much of a problem is this going to be for us moving forward? And then we heard that he's going to have a scan, which suggests that, you know, there could be a real problem here. I mean, Thomas Partey cannot play if, God forbid, he's got broken ribs or or if it's that bad. Hopefully it's just bruising. Hopefully it's something he can recover from quickly because God knows that we need him to recover quickly given our current issues in midfield. Lokonga came on in that second half and in the first 10, 15 minutes of that second period, I thought looked really poor. Uh, looked like he was a 
a lost puppy in the middle of the park. He didn't really know where to position himself, didn't really know how to progress the ball as effectively as Thomas Partey does, didn't do as good a job at screening the back line as Thomas Partey does. Look, again, that's not to sort of have a go at Sambi Lekonga. Just like I've said about Rob Holding, we know that these players aren't good enough. We know that they're not at the same level as the ones that they're asked to deputise for, right? Um, but I did think, to be fair to Sambi, that after the first 10, 15 minutes of the second half, he got better. I thought he started to find his rhythm a bit more. Arsenal in general, after Manchester City scored on 64 minutes, I thought improved again. I thought they were really good in the first half. The start of the second half was a little bit... Um, I don't want to go as far as saying shaky, but we certainly weren't as comfortable on the ball and we certainly weren't as as um, as in the game as we had been in previous moments. But as Arsenal got back into the game and as Arsenal looked to work uh, towards getting themselves back on level terms, um, I think that Lokonga grew into the game a little bit. He was a lot more confident, would skip past people in midfield, played more progressive passes. So, yeah, there was enough to say in that second half that Lokonga is better than what we've seen of him recently. Confidence feels like a massive, massive issue uh, for Sambi Lokonga. But how do you build confidence? The only way you build confidence is by playing and by playing well. But the problem is that Arsenal find themselves in a situation, in a position where we can't afford to wait for people to find their feet and to wait for people um, you know, to, to get to the level that we need him to be at. He's, he's not there now and we're challenging for a Premier League title and we need a ready-made solution. Some would argue that Moises Caicedo, who we're going to talk about a little bit later on, is a bit of a work in progress too. And that because he plays for Brighton and Hove Albion, where the expectation is a lot less, that goes under the radar a little bit. He's certainly not as good as Thomas Partey today, but you feel like he's closer to that level, of course, than Sambi Lekonga, which is ultimately why Arsenal want to bring him in. Uh, the goal we conceded, I don't really want to point fingers at any individual. I think Arsenal did, for the most part, what they should have done defensively in that situation. Uh, Julian Alvarez's strike was a brilliant strike. It comes back off the post. It comes to Grealish, who I think did really well to hold the ball up. And when he rolls it back to Ake, um, you know, I, I don't... like. I'm, I'm right behind that, right? I'm from the angle right behind Nathan Ake where I'm sitting. And I don't think that I expected Nathan Ake to find the far corner there. I certainly didn't expect a defender on his weaker foot to be able to pull off that type of finish. So I don't want to go on about what Arsenal could have and should have done better. Um, but what I want to do is give praise to Nathan Ake for a really cultured finish into that far corner. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that's what I want to say about the goal. Uh, we kind of huffed and puffed after that and we, you know, made a few half opportunities. I thought Gabriel Martinelli was key to that when he came on the pitch. I thought he was a real live wire. And I've been saying over the last few weeks that he's been a little bit below the level that we know he can be at. Again, that's not to sit and slate him or, or to say that he's no good or, you know, to be critical of him. He's a young lad. Obviously, brilliant news yesterday as well, uh, as reported by David Ornstein, uh, that he is, of course... Uh, signed a new contract and you know that is something that we could have done an entire podcast on that is something that we could have um, done a whole show on and and really sort of highlighted his brilliance and highlighted how far he's come but obviously there's been so much going on uh, with the match with Caicedo with Partey now as well that this has kind of got lost a little bit but just to quickly bring those up to speed that maybe haven't seen the reports, Gabriel Martinelli has agreed a new four and a half year contract that Arsenal, the previous terms, ran until 2024 and the Gunners had a two year option. Uh, but a fresh deal is being uh, finalised at the moment for the 21 year old to extend his stay at Arsenal until the summer of 2027. So that is obviously uh, great news. Fantastic news. Um, it really, really is. But yeah, I thought he looked good yesterday when he came on. And, you know, again, sometimes you're going to get this, right? You've got young players. There will be points where they dip. Everybody dips in form from time to time. So if you've got alternatives like a Leandro Trossard to be able to bring in and take the pressure off of them, um, like we did yesterday, then that's great. And, um, and I think Martinelli benefited, actually, from not starting the game yesterday and then coming on at a time where Arsenal were looking to, um, to get themselves back in it. He gave... 
uh, uh, Carl Walker quite a difficult time, I thought. Um, again, quick reminder to leave likes, guys, because we've got over 400 of you with me right now, but we've only got 92, 93 now likes on the board. Let's try and get that to 200. Come on, let's set a target of 200 between now and the end of the show. I'd really appreciate it. You probably wonder why the hell does this guy bang on about likes, but it really does help in terms of pushing the video um, up in the algorithm and getting it out to more people. Um, if you're listening on the podcast form, uh, then please do leave us a review. That also uh, really, really helps. Let's touch on a few individual performances. Um, again, kind of a quick summary on the overall performance was that I thought the performance was respectable enough. I thought it was a decent performance. It reminded me a little bit of this Arteta side in its earlier days of development where it looked good for 70%, but we just didn't really pack a punch. That's kind of how it felt a little bit yesterday. But because of the changes and because of people coming on and off uh, from the substitutes bench at various times in the game and the calibre of the opponent, I don't really want to dwell on that too much. I don't think it's worth dwelling on that. Put it this way, despite driving up there, or my mate drove up there, but despite a four-hour trip up there, um, a defeat, and then a four-and-a-half-hour trip back, when it should have been, what, three-and-a-half hours. Despite all of that, I didn't come back upset, angry, pissed off. I came back feeling actually quite positive about some of the things I'd seen. Were there some negatives? Yeah, there were. And were there some things that I think, in terms of weaknesses, had a light shone on them? Absolutely. Um, but we kind of knew that stuff. I, I put it this way. I haven't come back from the Etihad. I haven't come back thinking or worried about anything different to what I was already worried about going into this uh, this weekend. So nothing to really panic about, just sort of a reinforcement of some of the concerns that I already had. But I just want to touch on a few uh, individual performances. I've talked about holding, I've talked about Lokonga, so I'll leave those out. But a couple of other players I noted down, Leandro Trossard, as I said, really liked what I saw from him. I uh, thought he did a great job on that left-hand side, very direct. And I think there's so much more to come from him. Fabio Vieira was a little bit lost in the game for me and not for the first time uh, this season. I do think that Fabio Vieira seems to play better when he plays... No, I, I am, am I going down the wrong path here? I, I guess I, what I want to say is I actually prefer Fabio Vieira from the right than as part of the midfield trio, uh, which I don't think is what he was signed for ultimately. But he just, because he doesn't really bring you much physically, I think actually that's probably a role that's better suited to him for the time being. But again, a bit like Lukonga, he needs that confidence. He's got incredible technical ability. If you go back and watch some of the fantastic stuff he did at Porto, there's no denying his talent, but it's about getting him into the, the sort of rhythm of things and getting him up to speed. I'm not sure he's there just yet. Um, but again, a bit of a work in progress, isn't he? I, I know some people will say, look at what we paid for him. We can't afford for him to be a work in progress. I get that. But when you think that somebody like Cursado now is being talked about as a ninety-five million pound player, then you know, then thirty-five million that we spent on Fabio Vieira all of a sudden doesn't feel like a very significant amount of money. Um, I wanted to touch on Tommy Asu. I've been a bit of a critic uh, of Tommy Asu's of recent uh, times because I don't feel that he's been as solid defensively as he showed last season. Um, obviously the, his start to the campaign was disrupted by injuries. Then he went off to the world cup. He needed some time after the world cup to get back up to, um, you know, that his level came on as a sub at halftime against Manchester United to deal with the problems posed by Marcus Rashford following Ben White's booking. And I thought again, a bit like the Congo yesterday, barring the first 10 minutes against Manchester United, Tommy Asu was very, very good. He seemed to grow into the game. I thought yesterday, though, up against Jack Greenish, was as well as Tommy Asu's played defensively this season. I thought he was fantastic. Really, really good. Really strong. Really physical. Imposed himself. Um, you know, imposed himself physically on Jack Greenish when he needed to, but never really crossed any lines. I thought that that was... I looked at Tommy Asu's performance yesterday and I went, that's the Takahiro Tommy Asu that we had last season. 
That's the Takahiro Tomiyasu that we want to see. And obviously, he's gone through a little bit of a difficult period, but hopefully that performance means that he's come out on the other side of it. So those are my thoughts on the Manchester City game, generally speaking. As I say, if you want those uh, player ratings over on our uh, exclusive uh, content section on the um, Another Slice platform, you can go to that via the link in the description. You could download the app if you want as well. Or if you prefer, you can plug uh, the uh, RSS feed into the preferred podcast app of your choice. Oh, 30 minutes in. And we haven't talked Kaiseido yet, but I tell you what, we've got one hell of a section coming your way now. Uh, if I could remind you to leave a like on the video, I'm going to take some of your thoughts and questions and comments on this Kaiseido stuff. So please do start getting them in the chat. We're going to take a very, very short pause and we'll be back to discuss the Brighton midfielder who seemingly wants to move to Arsenal. Or is it to Arsenal? We'll talk about that in a moment. Here we go. Welcome back to part two of the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90 Min Football Network. Over 500 of you with us live right now. Uh, remember to leave a like on the video. Remember to subscribe to the channel if you are new. Uh, we want to get to that 26,000 uh, milestone. It's not really a milestone, but it's one of a mini mile, one of a number of mini milestones that will get us to the big milestone that we're aiming for next, which is, of course, um, 30,000. And I've just looked and we're one sub away, one sub. So if you're a freeloader in the chat right now, make sure that you're subscribed. OK, let's talk a little bit about Moises Caicedo then. So just to quickly bring people up to speed that maybe haven't been following this as closely. Arsenal had a bid rejected for Moises Caicedo yesterday, which was worth an upfront fee of £60 million as per Fabrizio Romano, David Ornstein and various others. Brighton flat out rejected that offer and their stance is very much that Moises Caicedo is not for sale during this transfer window. However, following the game last night, I think this was actually done during the game, uh, but I didn't see it obviously until after because I'm not scrolling through social media uh, during Arsenal games. Um, but Moises Caicedo uh, came out and put a very clear post out um, about what he wants uh, with regards to his future. I'll just read it to you guys uh, for those that, as I say, aren't up to speed with what exactly is going on. So Moises Caicedo took to social media to say this. I am grateful to Mr. Bloom, of course, the main man at Brighton and Brighton for giving me the chance to come to the Premier League. And I feel I've always done my best for them. I always play football with a smile and with heart. I'm the youngest of 10 siblings from a poor upbringing in Santa Domingo in Ecuador. My dream always was to be the most decorated player in the history of Ecuador. Bear with me one second. There we go. I thought I was going to sneeze, but I didn't. Um, I'm proud to be able to bring in a record transfer fee for Brighton, which would allow them to reinvest it and help the club continue to be successful. The fans have taken me into their hearts and they will always be in my heart. So I hope they can understand why I want to take up this magnificent opportunity. And then a little bit later on, and I don't know if this is significant, but he then posts another picture of himself in the Brighton kit at the Emirates Stadium. And he tags the Emirates Stadium in it. This is giving me Mikhailo Mudrik vibes. The problem with Mikhailo Mudrik vibes is that even when you get that, there's a good chance that uh, he could end up uh, signing for someone else, like Chelsea, for example. Um, but Moises Caicedo having... Been made aware of the interest, uh, very clearly wants to go, very clearly feels that there's an opportunity for him that he just cannot afford to turn down, um, that he's not willing to turn down. Financially, it's going to be big for him in terms of the contract that he would be on at either Arsenal or Chelsea, I'm sure. Um, obviously, financially, it would be massive for Brighton as well. But I just find this really, really interesting because Moises Caicedo, if he didn't, if he doesn't get a move now, will probably almost certainly get a move in the summer. But the fact that he's really kind of angling for this and really pushing for this suggests that maybe he believes that the opportunity that he wants, which we hope is uh, a move to Arsenal, might not be there in the summer. Otherwise, why would he push it so damn hard? 
because he really has gone out on a on a limb here. He really has um, put the cat amongst the pigeons. He's been left out of training. He's been told to stay away from training by Brighton and Hove Albion, according to reports this morning. He will not play a part in their game against Liverpool this weekend either. You know, he's risking the wrath of Brighton, who, look, everybody always says that Brighton are adamant they won't sell, absolutely no, door closed, whatever. If you pay the right money, which Miguel Delaney is reporting now is something around £90 million. That's what Brighton are looking for. If you pay that, you get him. It's as simple as that. But there's also something as well in this for Brighton, because outside of, you know, obviously wanting to get the maximum amount of money for him, they have to be careful with the precedent they set here. If Moises Caicedo departs the Amex Stadium during this window, it has to be on Brighton's terms. That's how the club will see it. Because, yes, they're notorious for bringing in players from overseas, improving them, showcasing them in the Premier League, and then flipping them for huge profits. That's that's part of the Brighton model. Something they do incredibly well. And it's why they are where they are today. But also, they can't set a precedent whereby any time a player publicly does what Moises Caicedo has done and goes out and expresses his desire to leave, the club buckle and allow that to happen. Now, if Brighton get closer to the £90 million they're said to want, then Brighton would argue that, yeah, OK, Moises Caicedo angled for this move. We felt like we had no choice but to let him go. We felt like letting him go was the right thing to do. But they would have done it on their terms because they would have achieved the transfer fee that they believe uh, is reasonable and fair for him. As it is with football, you know, you sometimes have to overpay for people if you want them. You know, I like Moises Caicedo. I like the player. But again, it's a bit like the Mikhailo Mudrik situation for me, where I know that funds at Arsenal aren't unlimited. Damien Kelly's going to give me shit in the comments. He's going to say that I'm being the Arsenal accountant again. Um, but the money at Arsenal isn't unlimited. Okay. And... As much as I liked Madrid and I like Caicedo, I would understand if the club feel that they are unwilling or simply can't go to extortionate amounts of money for players that just simply aren't worth that amount of money. Moises Caicedo, based on potential, is worth £50 million at best. At absolute best. Yet we're talking about nearly double that to get him out of Brighton right now. That is ludicrous. It's crazy. Yes, it's the way football's gone. And to a point, I agree that if you want to compete at the top table, you, you have to pay those extortionate amounts of money because that's the way the landscape is. But equally, I see the other side of it. And I understand why nobody would want to be seen to be paying double for something. Because again, when I talk about the precedent it might set for Brighton, but it also sets a precedent for Arsenal. If you go in low-balling teams but show that despite you going in with low ball offers, you're actually willing to double the offer quite quickly to get the deal done, then you are putting yourself in a weaker negotiating position when you go into the transfer market too. So it's difficult, isn't it? It's really, really difficult. Um, as I say, love the player. I think he'd be a great addition. The price, though, is a, is a big issue. Uh, David Marr on this one. Um, thank you so, so much, mate, for your very, very kind uh, super chat donation. It means the world to me. Really, really appreciate uh, you supporting the channel. He says, Harry, we should offer Brighton Lakonga for Caicedo plus the fee, of course. We would still be short in central midfield, but he's just not good enough. Uh, yes, he probably would have fit. He's talking about Lakonga, so he says, he's just not good enough. He probably would have fit into this team two years ago, but the standard is so high now. I agree, but moving Lakonga on at this moment in time, if Partey's injury is something that's going to keep him out for a while, doesn't really help us. Um, would Brighton want Lakonga? Would that be something that appeals to them? Would Lakonga want Brighton? These are all things that you have to factor in and consider as well. But right now, you know, Lakonga, I agree, he needs to go somewhere else. He needs to play football regularly. He needs to improve. Not really ready to give up on him 100%, though. I think a loan deal would be the right thing for him. But by that same token, can we do that now? Or, or should that even be something that we're worried about now, given our position, given where we are, given what we're challenging for? feels to me like spending time worrying about Lakonga between now and the end of the window is wasting time. We should be focusing on bringing more in because we need more, especially if Elneny's problem is going to keep him out for a little while. Um, 
let's go back uh, over to the chat box and see what you guys are saying. Um, Pavel Andreev says, if we can't get Caicedo now, should we look into Norgard? I don't know that Norgard's got the same ceiling and I don't know that I'd be willing to pay crazy money for Christian Norgard, but he's a player that I've, I've been impressed by when I've seen him this season and, and in previous seasons, obviously for Brentford. Uh, but again, Premier League to Premier League transfer, how are you going to get that done without paying way over the odds at this stage in the window? This is the problem when you leave it till the end of the window. Now, I would argue that Arsenal probably weren't going to bring in a midfielder had Mohamed Elneny not picked up that injury. And obviously, the Thomas Partey thing last night, it just increases the need, doesn't it, to go out and do business. But I think Arsenal were probably actually going to leave it had those injuries not occurred. And that's the frustrating thing, the fact that they brought in a centre-back and they overlooked a position for me that is of huge importance. But yeah, um, I wouldn't be rushing to sign Norgard, if that makes sense, but he's not the worst option in the world. Uh, that is kind of my take on that. Um, what else have we got? Uh, David Van Derven says, is it true that Albert didn't clap the away fans or just a pile on rumour? I'll be honest with you, mate. I'm not sure. Um, I didn't pay an awful lot of attention to him at the full-time whistle. Um, so I'd be lying if I said I knew the answer to that one way or the other. But even if he didn't clap the away fans, so what? Like, it ain't that big. A, like, I know fans that make those trips want to feel appreciated, myself included, right? I've made loads of them over the years. You do want to feel appreciated. You do want to be acknowledged by your players that you've traveled all that way to support, that you spent all that money to go and support. But is it really that big a deal? You know, just if the whole team avoids doing it, that's a different conversation. It does feel like a bit of a pile on thing with Lekonga, who might have been disappointed in his performance and found it difficult to, to kind of hide that. Uh, Pete Geary says, uh, if we don't sign anyone and Partey's injured, could we play Zinchenko in midfield? I've thought about that. Um, I think that's probably the best bet. Um, I know a lot of people disagree with me on that and they say, but then, you know, it changes our situation at left back. Yeah, it does. But, you know, a, a midfield of Zinchenko, Xhaka and Odegaard is pretty good, isn't it? I don't think it's as good as Partey, Xhaka and Odegaard but it's probably as good as we can muster together at the moment. You know, he is a leader, um, Zinchenko. He has played that position before. He does understand Mikel Arteta's system and what is required of the, the player in that particular area. So I wouldn't be a get... I think that would be the next best thing. I would have even argued that maybe that's a better option than Elneny. You know, to have Tierney at left-back and Zinchenko in midfield is probably better overall than to have... Elneny sitting in defensive midfield, in my opinion. Aris says, we all agree that Caicedo's worth is not even close to 90 million. However, the question here is whether he will be the perfect fit at this stage for our title challenge. If yes, we need to overspend. I get where you're coming from. I just think it's really easy as fans to say we need to overspend. We're not the ones fronting up the cash. We're not the ones having to make that work financially. So I think, yeah, I agree with the overall point that you're making but I think the reason why I always talk about the finances so much and why I get so much stick with people going oh my god uh stop being Arsenal's accountant etc etc is because I'm trying to be realistic about what can and can't happen from a financial standpoint like you know somebody might say to you you know go and buy this car as opposed to this car that you're looking at yeah it's easy for someone to say that to you but can they make it work financially can that person make it work financially? And I honestly believe that, you know, Arsenal have stretched themselves quite a bit based on what they've spent and the very little that they've brought in over the last few years. They're on the cusp of FFP problems as well. Although, you know, we've seen that that can be worked around clearly. Just look at Chelsea. But yeah, it just feels like um, that's much easier said than done. Um, Christian has a different opinion. He says Caicedo is worth 90 million to me. Um, he gives us quality in midfield if Xhaka or Partey miss time we're going for the Prem get him in uh, Jay Dime says uh, 90 million I like the player but come on man some of you suggesting that Jakob Kivior could play the defensive midfield position um, 
talked about this when we signed him. We talked about the fact that he's played there before, that there is a capability for him to do that. But since signing him, I've spoken to a few friends, colleagues that cover the Italian game very, very closely who have said that, okay, I guess technically you could put him in that position and you could shoehorn him in. But really and truly, that's not what he is. So I am a little bit reluctant to see us, or I'd be a little bit reluctant to, if I were in Mikel Arteta's position, take that gamble and, and that risk at this stage in a really key season. Um, Raphael says, hi, Harry, hope that you recover from your cold quickly. What's the realistic option to Caicedo? Um, thank you so much, mate. I feel like I have recovered from the cold, but because I've had zero sleep pretty much, my throat is a little bit croaky this morning. I'm a little bit worse for wear, but hopefully that passes a little bit uh, later on in the day. Um, what's another realistic option to Caicedo? Well, Zubimendi of, of Real Sociedad has been discussed as somebody that Arsenal might look to bring in. It's understood that Arsenal wanted to do that deal earlier on in the month, but the player himself was against the idea of moving to Arsenal mid-season. Can Arsenal convince him? Is that easier to do then? Uh, then bringing in Moises Caicedo, given the figures that are being quoted. Zubimendi does have a reasonable release clause as well. Um, so, yeah. Uh, let me take a couple more um, of your questions. Uh, Steve says, Harry, do you feel Saka missed Martin Odegaard and White last night? He seemed isolated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he definitely missed Martin Odegaard because Fabio Vieira just doesn't give you the same thing. Uh, Tommy Asu's played with Saka before. I don't think that's as, as big an issue, although I don't think the connection between Tommy and Saka is as strong as it is between White and Saka, clearly. But I think Martin Odegaard, uh, you're right to point out as being the uh, the big miss for him and the big problem for him because he just we just didn't get the wall, the wall, the ball. What am I talking about? We didn't get the ball out to him quick enough on that right-hand side at times. When we did manage to engineer those situations in those moments where um, where we had that man over on the right-hand side. It just took too long to get the ball out there. Um, unapologetically Blue is in the chat. Who do you support? Blue Chelsea? Is it Chelsea? I can't really tell from that. Uh, he says, Arsenal have no strength in depth. They will collapse soon when they play teams fighting relegation and at the business end of the Europa League. Are you a Chelsea fan? Just confirm, because if you are, I think you've got bigger problems to worry about than us, mate. If you're an Everton fan, you've got even bigger problems than that. Um, if you're a City fan, which I don't know if you are, um, yeah, I wouldn't be so sure that you're going to go on and achieve what you set out to at the start of the season either. So, um, yeah, chill out a little bit. Uh, Russ Morgan says, do I see us selling Tierney in the summer? I don't see that. I, I think that only if um, only if Kieran Tierney himself wants to move will you see that materialise. But, you know, he's, he's just kind of got to accept that this is his role. Now, the problem is that Kieran Tierney tactically clearly isn't as sophisticated as Zinchenko. We've seen that. We've had a light shone bright on that, um, you know, this season. Zinchenko's come in and taken it to a whole new level. It's not to say Tierney's a bad left-back, but is he the perfect fit for this team? Probably not. Still a great defender in his own right. Um, but also the other thing and the other reason I think that, you know, Mikel Arteta felt it worthwhile going out and bringing in another player that could cover that position was nothing to do with, you know, Tierney's ability necessarily, but more so to do with his availability. That's been a big problem for Kieran Tierney and a big problem for Arsenal over the years because we've gone into seasons relying on him and we've gone into campaigns where we've ended up in European semi-finals, as was the case a few years back, um, you know, right at the start of Mikel Arteta's tenure, where we've got uh, Granite Xhaka playing at left-back. And that's not what you want. You know, that's not what you want. So, uh, yeah. Uh, what else have we got? Uh, Odra Deck says, do you think Zinchenko was bullied by his former teammates after the end of the game? I think that's bullying. What are you, what are you referring to exactly? Just, just clarify uh, that for me. I didn't see the game on TV, obviously, so maybe I've missed something. But, I mean, I thought Zinchenko got a, an incredible reception when he came off of the bench. I thought he was lauded and adored by the Manchester City faithful. It's probably the most noise they made all match. 
To be honest, the atmosphere there is dreadful. It's really bad. Really, really bad. But anyway, um, that's enough about them. Right, I think we're going to leave it there. Uh, we've been going for about 50-odd minutes. We will, of course, uh, jump on and bring you updates uh, as and when there are updates um, around Arsenal's pursuit of Moises Caicedo. If there is any uh, significant developments around that, we will, uh, of course, bring you another edition of the show. We understand that uh, another bid was imminent, and that's valued at 65 to 70 million, I think is what somebody was reporting a little bit earlier on, but the Brighton are expected to reject that as well. So if that is the case, that isn't really a significant development because we kind of know it's coming. Uh, but if anything does, uh, of course, uh, materialise or, or does change significantly, we will bring you an additional update. I am at home all day today. Um, I'm chilling out. I'm trying to relax. Hopefully, um, I don't get called into action. But if I get called into action because Arsenal have made a breakthrough, then that would be worth it. Uh, but I'll speak to you guys, uh, if not later on, then tomorrow, uh, where we'll be bringing you another show. Enjoy the FA Cup weekend. Arsenal out the way. Um, just chill out, relax, take it easy and uh, strap yourselves in because it's going to be some ride now, isn't it, between now and the end of the season. Thank you all so much. I'll catch you very soon. Uh, don't forget to leave a like on the video. Where are we at? We still haven't made that 200 mark. Come on. Uh, there's over 600 of you in the chat and we haven't even got 200 likes on the board. That means two thirds of you are literally sitting there refusing to press the like button. What are you doing? Like, 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 subscribe to the channel. If you're new, I've just seen we've hit the 26,000 mark. So thank you so, so much. Uh, and of course, if you're listening on audio, please do leave us a review. I'll see you all soon. Until next time. Goodbye. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon.